0: Good morning, everyone. So glad that you're here. So glad you braved the snow. Um, you're, you're true Wisconsinites. You're true Midwesterners. Um, I was going to make fun of all of you watching from Arizona because you're snowbirds, um, which on the one hand, we're like so glad that you're here and watching. We're also a little jealous of you. And I was going to call you geese because I was like, I don't know of any other birds that travel south in the winter. And then people educated me because apparently like, <laughs> All the birds, except sparrows and hawks, are like, peace out. They just The geese are just real obnoxious about it. They're like, look at our flying V. We're going south. And every other bird's like, we're just going to sneak off. We're going to go south. We'll, we'll be back. Um, then the robin shows up. So all of you here, you are hawks braving the winter, sitting on the telephone pole hunting stuff in the snow. Um, and those of you still in Wisconsin at home, you're the sparrow. You're still here, but you stayed home. Okay, but that's, that's cool. No, I'm so glad you're here. So glad you're joining us. Thank you. We love you uh, so much um yeah welcome as john said the teaching series that jesus that john knew john already mentioned this but i need to do this right off the bat i realize it might be confusing that we're going to spend the next month talking about the disciple of jesus named john whilst our lead pastor's name is also john granted they're spelled differently but you won't be able to tell the difference obviously when i'm talking because they're pronounced the same so to help clear things up here's here's what i'm going to do um, when talking about the the gospel, the author of the gospel of John, who was the disciple of Jesus, I'll refer to him as John. Uh, when talking about our lead pastor, I'm going to refer to him in, in what he makes the staff call him during the week, which is the venerated Supreme Reverend, His Eminence, Jonathan Dorothy McNary. So um, he also makes us kiss his ring, but I don't want to pantomime that on stage. That'd be, that'd be weird. Um, I'm kidding. If if you're new, that's only funny because John's like the humblest guy in the world, So, which he tells us all the time. No, I'm kidding. He doesn't, doesn't do I'm <laughs> just kidding. Oh, man. All right. Well, before we jump in today, I want to introduce you to someone. This is uh, a picture of George Kohler. Does anybody know who George Kohler is? Anybody? I'd be real impressed if you, if you knew who this was. Uh, some of you might know a little bit later. Um, in 1984... Kohler had just started a limousine company when a client of his didn't show up while he was waiting to pick them up at O'Hare International Airport. Realizing his client was a no-show, he decided to leave. But right before he was about to leave, he noticed someone walking out of the airport. Who he noticed was the number three overall NBA draft pick, which had recently, just recently taken place. Kohler, being a sports fan, recognized this up-and-coming basketball star, walked up to him and offered him a limousine ride to his destination. The player accepted, and Kohler received a $25 fee with a $25 tip for that ride. And that player was Michael Jordan. Uh, A few weeks later, Jordan called Kohler uh, and asked him if he could pick up his parents from the airport and bring them to his Bulls game at the United Center. Shortly after that, Kohler's new limousine company had its biggest and longest lasting client for the last 38 years, the greatest basketball player of all time, Michael Jordan. From there, Kohler became not just Jordan's chauffeur, but also his bodyguard, advisor, companion at public appearances, confidant, per, personal assistant, and ping pong partner. In addition, as you can see, as you saw in the title of the slide, he became Michael Jordan's best friend, which he remains to this day. Okay, remember George. We're going to come back to him later. The reason we're studying the Jesus that John knew and focusing on the Gospel of John when talking about Jesus leading up. To our Easter celebration is that there is something uniquely different about John's gospel written by him with his first hand personal experience of Jesus' life and ministry. Something about his writing that differs not only from every other book in the Bible, but also from the other gospels. Let's do a quick historical review of the gospels. There are four gospels, like John, shoot, I I can't remember the thing I said. Pastor John said, I I messed up my own thing. Okay. John mentioned four different Gospels Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You might think that all four were written by uh, disciples of Jesus, but actually only half of them were true disciples, which were Matthew and John. Mark and Luke were not disciples of Jesus. Instead, they were followers of him, both during his uh, three year ministry before his crucifixion and after his resurrection and ascension. Each author was documenting what they had witnessed from a very different vantage point, very different perspective, and they were writing their letter, their book, to very different audiences to like proclaim the gospel and talk about the life of Jesus. Again, some were disciples, some were not. Some were just followers. But all of these men came from a variety of backgrounds. Matthew was a tax collector. Mark was actually one of Peter's disciples after Jesus' ascension. Luke was a physician, and John was a fisherman. Now, the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're called the Synoptic Gospels. I don't know if you've ever heard that term. It's a real like seminary term, so us nerds can get excited. Um, Synoptic Gospels, they're called that because all three of them, the writing and the narrative and the, the storyline of what they documented about Jesus is very similar, and they talk about a lot of the same events, a lot of similar events. Now, some critics use this, the Synoptic Gospels, and they point out small details which differ from Matthew, Mark, and Luke as evidence that the Gospels are not reliable. However, according to historians and people who have studied this, these slight differences in their perspectives actually indicate the exact opposite and affirm their reliability, not question it. The fact that certain small details differ from one of the the different perspectives that these men were writing is one of the most positive evidences that indeed they are reliable and were written firsthand by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. If every single detail lined up in the Synoptic Gospels, that would actually be a huge red flag to historians going, well, clearly, these are like different people with different perspective and different you know, filters that they experience these events through, so naturally, there would be like, different like perspectives and, and memories. If all of it lined up perfectly, that would be an indication they got together and colluded and said, hey, let's all make sure we say the same thing as we're making up the story about Jesus so people believe us. Also, in the scope of human history, the time between the events that happened in the Gospels and when they were recorded was extremely short. Typically, a lot of our ancient uh, books, a lot of our ancient references were not documented and written down until hundreds, sometimes thousands of years after the initial event. But all of the Gospels were written between 30 and 70 years after the life of Christ, which gives causes historians to give them over a 99% rate of trustworthiness, which is the highest among almost every single historical document in existence. Now, even though 30 to 70 years, you're like, why would you wait that long to write something down? Like, you got to write it down that day if you're a journaler or a note taker. You get that. Why would you wait that long? But In the ancient world, like, writing utensils, writing equipment was not widely available. It was very expensive. Like, this was not something that people did in the ancient world. In the ancient world, history and information was passed on through oral tradition. And this was done by many, many people for hundreds and thousands of years, generation after generation after generation. This was the way that history was preserved and remembered in the ancient world, is that people would pass on the information From themselves to their children, to their friends, and then it would continue and continue. Now, this was not like the game of telephone. Um, If if you've ever played the game of telephone, you know, where you like get in a circle and then one person whispers a phrase and then you go around and there's that one jerk kid who messes it up on purpose to make it sound, I hated that guy, Steve Cook, man, if you're out there. I'm kidding, I love you, Steve. So this was not like the game of telephone, where you think like, well, goodness, if they're passing on history, you know, for thousands of years over generations, something is going to get messed up. No, that was not true. Not only was this practice something people were extremely well-versed in, and they also didn't have Netflix and Spotify, you know, taking up other memory space. This is what they remembered. But also, because so many people were passing on history, like, verbally, if at any point any small detail in the historical record was skewed or a little bit off all of the other sources would immediately correct it before it continued on. And again, this was the case with all other historical documents that we trust, that are taught in our education, that are, you know, like scholars and professors and historians rely on and trust books were not written, again, for hundreds and thousands of years after the initial event, but because they were passed down verbally and orally over generation, this is how it was trusted. All that to say, what is written in the Gospels is extremely trustworthy. Not just from like a faith, well, just believe it because it says so, for the Bible tells me so, just believe it, don't ask questions. No, no. From a literal perspective, from a tangible, practical perspective, not only theologians but historians admit that the Gospel documents are extremely trustworthy. They were written by who they said they were written by, and what happened is exactly what happened. So, as we read the book of John, as we dive into what he wrote about his experience of of the life of Jesus that he got to live firsthand, we not only know it's trustworthy, but we can trust the author who wrote it. Speaking of which, I want to learn a little bit about John. Um, It's believed that John's mother was actually Mary's sister Jesus' mom's sister, and one of the women who was mentioned being present at the cross and who went to Jesus' tomb the morning that he was resurrected, which means John was Jesus' cousin. Since the Jewish culture was highly focused on family, uh, it's not only almost certain that Jesus and John spent time together as they were growing up, it's also very possible that they lived in the same like communal household for at least a period of their lives, if not for a long period. Uh, An ancient Judaism, uh, families lived in what's called Beit Av. This is called a Beit Av. They didn't have the stone colored trash can back then. That's modern. So just, I just want to make that real clear. That's, uh, yeah, they didn't have that then. But this is just an example of what like a communal household would look like, where there would be, uh, anywhere from like two to three or four or five families who would live in this one compound. Now, there would be walls, and there would be wood, and there would be hay and cover, and that would be, like, where the animals would stay at night or to keep them safe. But there would be all these, like, family compounds, like, spread all over, and the, you know, families would all live together. The father, the, like, patriarch of the household would always prepare a place for if one of his sons or new family members got married, he would prepare a place for them to come live and join them in their Beit Av, in their household. So, again, it's very possible that John and Jesus actually lived together as they were growing up in the same place. One of the most notable facts about John is that of all of Jesus' disciples, John is the only one to have died from natural causes. Every single one of Jesus' disciples was killed for their belief and public de- declaration in Jesus. Now, John was banished to an island because of his faith, but, you know, curveball, this was the island where God gave him the vision of the end times and he wrote the book of Revelation. And the reason John's gospel is set apart from the synoptic gospels and set apart on its own, not only from the gospels but from every other book in scripture, is because, as I mentioned, his writing is just drastically different than what we read in the previous three gospels. Not just in content, but more significantly in tone and style. Most of us, if not all of us, are familiar with The Christmas story. We hear it every year. Uh, You know, it's acted out with robes and towels and stuff, and we watch Linus talk about it uh, from the stage. Very familiar with the Christmas story. Typically, when we talk about the Christmas story, we are reading from Luke two and Matthew one and two. Almost always, if you were to read those, you'd be like, "Yep, this is the Christmas story. This is what I'm familiar with." But John's gospel records the the account of Jesus' birth. Very differently. This will give you an example of how different John's writing was compared to the Synoptic Gospels. This is how John, in John 1, verse 1 through 5, talks about the birth of Jesus. In the beginning, the Word existed. The Word was God, or the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through Him, and nothing was created except through Him. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and His life brought light to everyone The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected them. But to all who believed and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting in human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. So the Word became human and made His home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen His glory and the glory of the Father's one and only Son. That is not the Christmas story you're probably familiar with. It's real hard to act out metaphors. (laughs) It's like not easy Here, son, put on this light. You know, it's just hard to do. It's hard to act out. But as you can see, real different style, just very different writing that John has from the Synoptic Gospels. Now, there's one thing uh, that John does in his book, and kind of what I want to camp out on for the time that we have remaining, that's very unique, very, like, intentional, very specific that he does that I want to spend uh the rest of our time talking about. Um a lot of other books in scripture, not all of them, a lot of other books the author at some point identifies themselves. Some of them we don't know who wrote them. Most of them we do, we have a good idea either through history or because they said it in the in their book. Um even the even the synoptic gospels most of them they're, they identify themselves as who is writing it. Um John also identifies himself, but he never uses his own name. He never uses his own name. Instead, he identifies himself this way. When talking about himself in his own writing, John refers to himself every time as the disciple who Jesus loved. An example at the Last Supper, John 13, 23, says, The disciple Jesus loved was sitting next to Jesus at the table. Every single single time. He doesn't say John, he doesn't say I, uh, he doesn't list his name. He says the disciple who Jesus loved. He uses this phrase five times, or a variation of it throughout his gospel, all referring to himself. Now, there are kind of two main schools of thought or interpretations as to why John did this. Um, The first one, and one that I've most heard, is that he did this out of humble gratitude. Um, similar to another John, John the Baptist, who when Jesus came to him, he said, listen, I am not even worthy to untie your sandals, let alone baptize you. So it's this position of like intense humility and worship and reverence and awe for the Son of God. And so, John, you know, the interpretation is like John had such awe and worship for Jesus, having, you know, spent three years walking around with him, that he's like, I'm not even worried that I have my name on the same page that Jesus' name. So I'm just going to put the disciple who Jesus loved. Now, that very well might be true. Um, You know, at least a portion of it, I believe, is 100% true, just knowing John's heart and John's character, that he had a lot of awe and respect and worship for Jesus. But there's another interpretation. This was actually one that I didn't really know about until we were preparing for this series, and uh, John, our lead pastor, like, mentioned this interpretation. I thought, that's awesome. I want to talk about that. That's great. The second interpretation is that John didn't list his name, but instead the disciple who Jesus loved, and he did this out of joyful, pride in the knowledge that Jesus loved him, that writing his name wouldn't have been enough for him to communicate the joy and the pride that he felt from knowing and having walked with the Son of God, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, our Lord. He knew Jesus loved him, and he was deeply proud of it, so much so that he wanted to take every opportunity he could in his writing to make sure people knew, hey, Jesus loved me. And I like this interpretation a lot. I love the idea that John, Jesus' closest friend, which we'll talk about in a minute, made this intentional point that everyone reading what he wrote would know he was loved by Jesus. This doesn't mean Jesus loved anybody any less. doesn't mean he loved John any more. But in John writing his own letters, documenting what he had experienced very intentionally, as we'll see in a moment, he was so proud of the fact that he knew he was a disciple that Jesus loved, and he wanted to make that clear to everybody reading. It was like a uh, its a very unashamed name drop. He was like straight up name dropping Jesus and not ashamed of it, of like Messiah, Savior of the world, promise, you know, Lord that God said, and he loved me. And this, for this reason, we see this picture of John's heart, this glimpse of John's like heart and personality. This is the nucleus of why John's gospel is so distinct. The uniqueness of John's gospel and what he wrote about Jesus came from the fact that they were extremely close. As we read through the gospels, um, we get this sense that Jesus chose 12 disciples, which was very cultural back then for a Jewish rabbi to do, to follow him. Of those 12 disciples, we can tell that there were three that he was especially close to, that he included, there were uh, three different experiences that Jesus only invited uh, Peter, James, and John to. These were kind of his like inner circle that he invited them to to experience. And so that he had this like inner circle within his 12 disciples. But then of those three, again, from Scripture, we know that John was the one that he was closest to. Um, This might have been due to them having grown up together and, you know, being related as they were cousins. It was maybe because of something in John's heart that Jesus really, like, connected with, or it might be a reason we'll never know, or at least we can't tell from the text. But whatever it was, John was Jesus' closest friend, and it was this closeness that's reflected in the writing of John. Now, uh, as a man, I know it's not real manly to be like, I've got a bestie. You know, you probably shouldn't say that in general. But it, just, you know, as, as, as guys, you know, I don't know if for ladies, like, you know, I can't speak for you. But for men, it's like, we, that's, we don't necessarily want to, we don't typically like, I'm going to call my best friend. We're going we're gonna to go hunting. I'm going to go hunting with my, best, my bestie. We probably don't say that. Uh, in fact, the internet is also very aware of this. And I found a tweet talking about the stages of male friendships that I'd like to share with you. Um, so you just met, seems like a cool guy, hung out twice. I got a buddy who hung out on, go out on weekends. I got a buddy who, two, literally best friends. I got a buddy who, known each other for life. Hey, I got a buddy who, so this is, this is pretty accurate, right? If you're a guy, it's 100%. Like, you know, your guy you've known your whole life knows everything about you, and you're still like, this buddy of mine, you know, like, oh, did you just meet at the weekend? You're like, no, I've known him since birth. I don't, what, what do you mean? He's my buddy. Anyway. Um, so that's true. And, and, so we have to like take this context in what Jesus did with his close friends and with his disciples. And if you're somebody in the room or maybe watching online and you're not sure what you think about Jesus, you're not sure if you know he's the son of God, uh, I'd like to show you what I believe is a miraculous sign for his divinity that, again, the Internet pointed out to me. Uh, here's this. Nobody talks about Jesus' miracle of having 12 close friends in his 30s. <laughs> miracle. Right, We all get that. So I get that as as men, as a guy like you know having a best friend or like really close friends or twelve friends in your thirties. Gosh, I don't you know I don't even have that. I don't really want that, don't, but you know that's good for Jesus. But Jesus loved John so much that moments before his death, as he's hanging on the cross, beaten and bloody, and paying for the sins of all mankind, he made a point to commission John to care for his mother. In John 19, verse 25, standing near the cross where Jesus' mother and his mother's sisters Mary. A lot of Marys back then. They really should have diversified. A lot of Marys. Um, the wife, wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. Three Marys. Good heavens. I don't know how they... I mean, I can differentiate John and John. I don't know how they did that back then. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, there's John, he said to her, Dear woman, here is your son. And he said to this disciple, Here is your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his home. Now, this was a big deal culturally. Um, It's believed that Joseph, Jesus' father, died at some point when Jesus was young, maybe when he was a teenager, if not a little bit younger. And so Mary, uh, you know, had to rely on the the generosity of other people to help sustain her family or her sons once they were of age. This was the culture back then. It was a very patriarchal society. And so if a woman did not have a husband or an eldest son to take care of her, she was very much out of luck. Like, it could have been a very rough life for Mary after this point with her eldest son, Uh, you know, being crucified. And so in this moment, when he tells John that this is his mother and his mother that this is his son, he was assuring her being cared for for the rest of her life because he chose his closest friend, his uh, cousin, John, to become the caretaker for his mother. I mean, very significant, really incredibly powerful moment. So, when we read through John, because of the closeness of John's relationship to Jesus, the language that John writes with, is the most intimate, personal, personable portrayal of Jesus. Throughout his writing, as we read it over the next month, I hope you'll join us, John captures this deep sense of Jesus' heart, of his personality, of how much he loves, of how much he cares. It is in John's Gospel where Jesus is described as the bread of life, the light of the world, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, and the life, and the true grapevine. John was extremely intentional with what he recorded in his gospel. He made a very specific point on which accounts, which miracles, which quotes, which events, which details that he included in what he wrote. He wrote down what he felt was most important for people to understand about the personal heart and character of the Savior of the world. Uh, John concludes his book with these sentences. Last, last couple of uh, verses of John 21. He says, This disciple is the one who testifies to these events and has recorded them here, and we know that this, this account of these things is accurate. He says, Jesus did also many things, and if they were all written down, I suppose the whole world could not contain the books that would be written. Now, I think he did this for a couple reasons. Not only is that a testament to just the sheer impact that Jesus had, and he was like, I could not record all that he did. I also think him saying this is making it clear, so what I did write down really matters. Like I could have recorded so many things and filled the entire world with a lot of writings, but what I wrote down really mattered, so pay attention to it. Because in it you will discover who Jesus is. The heart and the personality of who Jesus is. And so for the sake of today, as we kick off the series, as we're going to close out in just a minute, I want us to walk away with this truth that the Jesus John knew, the, the personal friend, the closeness, the intimacy that he had with Jesus, the Jesus John knew is the Jesus we also are meant to know. A close, personal friend. Jesus is not meant to be some distant Savior A statue that we worship, an out-of-touch deity who flippantly tosses us the occasional blessing, a cruel, power-wielding God who wants to see us struggle and fail. That is not the person of who Jesus is. And if you read John's gospel, you'll understand who he truly is. He is our, our friend, a close, personal friend. Because we, you, are the disciple who he loves. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we all are the disciple who Jesus loves. And just like Jesus did with John, Jesus reveals his presence and power to each of us. Jesus pursues and seeks after each of us. His greatest desire is simply to be with us, to know us, and for us to be with him and to know him. During the Last Supper in John's Gospel, he records Jesus as saying this to his followers, including us, I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you are my Friends, since I have told you everything the Father has told me. Imagine the, the Savior of the world saying, You, we are friends. In fact, the Greek word that's used here for friend is also the Greek word that's used to describe the best man to a groom at their wedding. In another one of John's books, First John, he also wrote this, See how very much our Father loves us. He calls us His children. And that is what we are. The Greek word used here is a neutral noun that's translated children or boy or girl. It includes all of us. It is also derived from the root word that essentially describes the act of adoption in the ancient world by paying a high price for a child. He doesn't call us servants. He calls us friends. See how much our Father loves us that we are his children. Now, I realize the concept of Jesus loving us is not new. That's not some like random thought. You're like, oh, I didn't know this. Let me write that down. I realize that's new. One of the first songs we ever learned, I think has maybe the most powerful beginning of any song in all of history, especially the second part where it says, Jesus loves me, this I know. John knew it. He made it real clear. He wrote it down again and again and again and again and again. Peter, Mark, and John, nope, nope, the disciple who Jesus loved. Jesus loves me. This I know, and John is not the only one to make this clear. Throughout Scripture, this is real clear. I want to read you a, a Psalm that has just like meant a lot to me over the last couple of weeks. I've read it uh, so many times. So if you've heard of me read it, forgive me. Uh, psalm one nineteen, a couple of verses from that. Thousands of years before even the birth of Jesus, the author wrote this song um, about the closeness of God. It says, "Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I get up. You understand my thought from far away. You scrutinize my path and my lying down, and are acquainted with all." My ways, even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, Lord, you know it all. This is my favorite, I love this. You have encircled me behind and in front and placed your hand upon me. Man, that's what a friend does. That's what a father does to his child. You have encircled me in front and behind and placed your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high, I cannot comprehend it. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee From your presence. How precious are your thoughts for me, God? How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. God thinks about you all the time. You cannot count the number of times God thinks about you because you, we, are the disciple who he loves. And this is the lens that I want us to read the Gospel of John with. In fact, this is the lens that I would love us to, we we should view God through our entire lives. Again, not as seeing God as this like angry judge or crotchety old man who lives in the clouds. We need to see him for what he truly is, for who he truly is, the one who loves us, who calls us friend, who calls us child. And once we start seeing God in this way, once we shift the lens in which we interpret of how we see God accurately based on how he is described, our perspective on everything changes. God's law changes from simply being a list of rules to now being the patient instructions of a loving father wanting his children to live the best life they possibly can. It changes spiritual discipline, like prayer and worship and community and reading scripture and fasting. They change from obligations to ways that we can experience the presence of the one who loves us. It shifts them from shoulds to get-tos. Relationships change from ways that are selfish, that are just meant to us to be things that we can do to experience more of God's presence, more of the one who loves us. Work suddenly becomes where we find purpose and we discover our gifts and our passions and satisfaction as we work for him, not for man. Love becomes the thing that we are filled with constantly because of him. Peace and hope and joy become a way of life regardless of our circumstances, not something that we have to chase through material possession. When we start seeing God as the one who loves us, all it changes everything. All right, remember George? Some of you thought I forgot. I did not forget about George. Now, it's clear uh, that he has, you know, amazing heart and loyalty towards Michael Jordan, uh, his best friend. And he's been his best friend for, for many, many years. I also I think it's cool. It's amazing that most of us would never know who he is. He doesn't broadcast this fact. He doesn't leverage it for his own personal gain or fame or money or anything like that. He just focuses on being the best, you know, chauffeur assistant, best friend that he can be. But I learned something about George and Michael that I want to share with you. This image is a still image taken from uh, uh, the documentary *The Last Dance*. Which, if you haven't seen it, leave right now and go watch it right now. I'm uh, from the last dance about Michael Jordan's uh, six championships when he was with the Chicago Bulls. Um, during this interview, uh, I was watching a behind-the-scenes thing, and uh, Kohler actually wasn't sure what he wanted his title to be under underneath his name, because he obviously did like so much and was just so connected to, to Jordan. So he just said, just put assistant. Like, that's easy. That kind of sums everything up. Just put assistant. But it was Michael Jordan himself who reviewed the entire documentary before it's released, he was the one who insisted to the filmmakers that they include best friend. <laughs> and as incredible it is to think what it would be like to be best friends with Michael Jordan, I'm working real hard on that, I'm not getting very far. What's even more amazing is when Michael Jordan himself makes a point to make sure everyone knows that you are his best friend to make sure the whole world watching this documentary was very clear on the identity of George Kohler, And the amazing thing is, more so than Michael Jordan, the creator and savior and sustainer of the universe, the God of all mankind, he makes a point to make sure every one of us knows that we are who he loves that God name-drops you. And not only does Jesus call us friend and child and the one he loves right now, but maybe the most important moment when he will do this comes at the end of all things. In Matthew 10, 32, Jesus says, Everyone who acknowledges me publicly here on earth, he says, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven that Jesus name-drops you to his heavenly Father. In fact, I heard a pastor talk about this scripture one time, and whether it's literal or metaphorical, the point still matters, where he talks about, because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, those of us who have been cleansed of our sin, the moment when we face judgment for what we have done wrong, that, that the God of justice will look at us, and instead of judging us, Jesus, his son, will step in and say, no, they're with me. They they received my gift of forgiveness. And so when the holy, perfect father looks at us, he will see nothing but cleanliness because all of our sin was put on Jesus. Jesus said, they're my my friend, (laughs) They're, they're with me. And if Jesus made a documentary, it would feature every single one of us, every single one of you, and right below your name, it would say the disciple who Jesus loved. So join us as we read through John as he gives us powerful, personal, very unique perspective on who Jesus is because it is the Jesus that we are all meant to know, which is the Jesus that John knew. Let me pray. Lord God, Lord Jesus, thank you for your love. Lord, that's something I just never, ever want to take for granted. Lord, I never, ever want to um, lose sight of the power, the life, eternity-changing power of your love. And Lord, in this moment, this morning, God, I ask just very basically that you would make it clear to each one of us that you love us, that we are your friend, your disciple, your child um, whom you love. God, for some of us in this room, for some of us tuning in online or listening, it might have been a long time since we believe that truth, since we felt that, since we sensed that, since we chose to believe it. But I ask, Lord Jesus, in this moment, you would make that clear in our hearts, in our spirits, in our minds, the depth and height and width and breadth of your love for us. And as simple as that concept is, Lord, I pray it would change everything. Pray would change our work, our relationships, change our hearts, our disciplines, our obedience, our joy, our peace. Just resting on the truth and the knowledge that we are the friend, the child, the disciple who you love. God, I pray a blessing over our study of John that you would reveal yourself in powerful, miraculous, new and fresh ways as we read through the Gospel of John over these next four weeks and then celebrate and remember the ultimate punishment that you paid for each of us because of your love. And I pray this all in your name. Amen.